Blog Talk Radio. Gregory Rowley is dying of cancer, and he wants to come home to die with his family. Most of you said you don't think Rowley should be released. Tonight, the victim's family is sounding off. KXY Forest Tori Brunetti is live with what the victim's family thinks about the possibility that Rowley might get out of prison early. Tori? Well, it was not easy for the family to speak out about this. It brought out a lot of painful memories about the tragic way David Ritchie did die. But his mom, his three kids, and peers to speak out about a policy that they call unjust. He was a good dad, a loving dad. He used to take me to ice cream. Stephanie Ritchie was only five when her father was murdered, but for her and her family, wounds 20 years old are still as raw as the day they were formed. I'm alone, and I don't get to grow old with my husband. David Ritchie's family describes him as a loving man, hardworking and funny. He was beaten to death on his paper route in February of 1987. He left my husband on a cold, cold parking lot in the middle of winter with nobody around him. And now, Gregory Rowley, the man convicted of killing him, is suffering from cancer. And because of a Department of Corrections policy, he may be able to go home and spend his final days with his family. He was judged by a jury of his peers. He committed a horrible crime. And he made it to where David is not to be with his family anymore. Last week, Rowley's mom told us her son should not have to die alone in prison. That triggered a flood of emotions from Richie's family. Mr. Rowley did not think one bit about this man that he was killing. He did not think about the family. None of them think Rowley should be allowed to get out of prison. But they do have compassion for Rowley's family. They don't want another family to suffer. But at the same time, their father, son, and husband didn't have the choice of dying at home. He didn't give my dad a chance to be held on his last moments. He left him alone and by himself with nobody to hold him. As of now, Rowley will remain in prison. The Department of Correction says he doesn't meet the criteria, but his case will continually be under review. The extraordinary medical placement policy has been in effect since 2001, and since then, 45 criminals have been placed out of prison because of a severe medical condition. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight we deal with a controversial issue, and that is, I'll be honest with you, where the controversy comes, I'm not quite sure. We're going to get to the bottom of it tonight as we address the terminally ill, the sick, the dying, the hurting in America's prisons, and how do we deal with it, and where, what happened to compassionate release. We deal with all that tonight here on AJC Radio. Folks, hang on. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, and Dennis Merritt, and, and Samson Riddle, all of the team here tonight. And I'll tell you right now, folks, this is somewhat of a troubling topic tonight, but uh, we're going to have the discussion tonight, and, and this is serious business as we talk about the treatment of the terminally ill behind the wall 
uh, our continued series uh, dealing with collateral damage, families affected, all of these folks dealing with this issue. And this is a touchy one. If you have a loved one locked up who becomes terminally ill, do we just as a society say, well, they were in prison, they've done something wrong, they committed a crime, so just let it go. Don't worry about it. If they got cancer, they had it coming. Or whatever terminal disease. And then you have the elderly behind the wall that are, are plagued with diseases and sickness. At this point, no threat to society. Many of them spending decades uh, in prison for the crime they committed. Do we ever say they've done enough time uh, that fits the crime? Uh, we're going to be all over the place on this one tonight, but in a good way. Uh, Samson, as we tear into this one, uh, we got into discussion prior to coming on the air. And I'll tell you right now, the temperature is already hot at AJC Radio as we begin to go back and forth on this issue. Give me your thoughts. Well, Lamont, I mean, Julie, this is going to be a really sensitive subject because, I mean, their passions are going to fly high on both sides of this, I think. But the fact of the matter is that the compassionate release has been around for more than three decades. Fact of the matter. The fact, but the thing remains is that states are hesitant to adopt it. Like you said, society just wants to condemn these people and whatever happens to them happens. But I think like we were talking about before we came on the air, that they were given a sentence. They weren't sentenced to death. They were given a term in which they had to serve and pay their debt back to society. Now, there, is, there are actions in place where given extraordinary family circumstances or terminal illness where they are no longer a threat, to the society that they owe this debt to, that they can be released. Now, the fact is that a lot of states don't want to do this because, again, like we've said before, they just don't care. But we got to start treating people like people again and stop treating them like a, they're a number. Just because they go behind the wall, just because they've had a mugshot or something like that done, doesn't depreciate the value of their lives. And I think that's a lot of things we're going to be hitting on tonight. Well, without question. The bottom line is if I get sentenced to life in prison, my medical diagnoses uh, is separate from all of that. Uh, if you could sentence someone to cancer, if you could sentence someone to a terminal illness, that's one thing. We don't have the ability to do that. So anything beyond my sentence is not necessarily the right thing because I'm dying of cancer and I get diagnosed and I'm given a month or two months or six months or a year to live. That's not an addition or an enhancement to my sentence. Kendrick, your thoughts? The way I see it is prisons look at uh, prisoners from the bottom line standpoint. They don't really look at you as a human. If I let someone out of prison, that's a, line, that's a missing portion of their budget. So they don't, care that you're, they don't care that you're sick or dying or whatever. They're going to squeeze that last dollar out of you for the last wow. second that you're in the prison. So I, I can once they need to be educated, and there probably needs to be, in my view, legislation that that forces them to guide when a when a when an inmate becomes at a certain level of health where he is not going to finish out a sentence. It is clear from a from a doctor's standpoint, then compassionate release should be mandatory. It should be a law because at that point, let that person go. No, oh, good point, Cliff. Your thoughts on this one? Yeah, what you what you see. And continue to see as far as um, the response, even from the I was reading up on the uh, the Bureau of Prisons on the federal level, because the the states, they all implement 
compassionate release um, in a different way. And that's the problem. There is no guideline that says, I mean, the guideline is there. The compassionate release law is there even at the federal level, but nobody is forcing to say, this is how you implement it. There, there's so many arbitrary uh, reasons why compassionate release is, is, uh, is given. Oh, you have to have, have served 50% of your prison term or you have to be over the age of 65. There's all these arbitrary issues. Nobody says how old you have to be to become terminally ill. Nobody says how long you have to have spent in prison to be fed the slop that, uh, that the, you know, the Bureau of Prisons or the state prisons feed people to cause medical conditions. So they need to come up with a guideline that lays it out that says this is what is this is how you really um, request, apply, and are assigned for compassionate release. Because as we all know, the BOP director at any time can say, okay, your sentence is cut so that that halfway point can be immediate. It's based on, uh, sadly, the fact that you have a person in the director of the Bureau of Prisons or the um, the DOC commissioner in state prisons that says, well, I feel like letting you out or I don't. So it boils down to a political aspect of what should be a human uh, medical reason why a person should be out. It should be based on a doctor's recommendation, not on the DOC commissioner, commissioner or the BOP uh, director to say, I feel like you should get out. The, these are the, the issues with compassionate release that need to be dealt with. No, without question. And, uh, and we're going to deal with that, folks. Look, and make no mistake about it, to the victims of crimes and those that have suffered at the hand of others, we're not taking away in any way what you have endured, what you've gone through, the loss of a loved one. That's bigger than all of us. What we're saying is, is that we live in a society where redemption, for one, is out of the window. And again, the death sentence was not given in the cases we're talking about. They were sentenced to a period of time. Their freedom was taken. They were locked up. They were, the judge says, I sentence you to 20, 30 years, whatever it is. And as Kendrick alluded to in the point he made, many of these guys, when you become diagnosed with a terminal illness, you're not going to finish that term. It's impossible. We're saying, can they go home and die? Not go out and build a house, get a new career, buy a new car. None of that. We're talking to go home and die. That's a whole nother ball game. We're going to deal with it on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio dealing with two things tonight. The terminally ill inmates in America's prisons, in jails. What are we doing as a society that is humane? Or have we fallen off altogether? We're going to deal with both sides. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% 
of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call one 855 That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call one 529 4252 It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Odds of becoming an astronaut, one in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, one in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, one in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator. 
one in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, one in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, one in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, one in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, one in two men, one in three women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation, for the ones we love, for our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. AJC Radio here tonight as we deal with the conditions in America's prisons and the terminally ill, the sick, the dying, the destitute, if you will. And uh, I'll tell you right now, what we're hearing and what we're seeing is, is nothing short of horrific uh, of what we are seeing and observing in America's prisons, whether you're talking about the elderly, uh, the sick, the lame, the handicapped, the dying, the terminally ill folks across this country. Uh, but not only those folks behind the wall, but the family members that suffer and watch their loved ones be treated so terribly bad uh, is something that we have to take a look at. It is something that we have to talk about, and I'll say it again. The criminal justice system in this, system in this country is not about uh, levying out more punishment and more punishment and more punishment after a person has been sentenced for the crime. Uh, we have learned and we very well know that there are plenty of people locked up in institutions across this country that were not guilty of the crimes they went to prison for. Uh, yet we find ourselves as a society becoming barbaric, treat, uh, withholding pain medication, treatment medication for illnesses that only one living that nightmare, living with that pain and that suffering, and for a loved one to be on the other side of that, knowing that their mother, their father, their sister, their brother is in pain, hurting, and yet the treatment of that loved one is continually tormented uh, as a result of really a system that does not care. Uh, we have elderly folks in prison that are dying, that are el- dying the normal process of death cannot hardly walk, cannot hardly move, cannot hardly function, suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's, all these things locked in a cell. If somebody can justify to me where that becomes okay, I'm waiting to hear that answer. Dennis, I don't think we have it. I don't think we do neither. And I, uh, I'm sure there's some uh, victims uh, that are out there that believe they do, but I look at it like this. I mean, when you talk about compassion, and that's all—that's what it's all about. Uh, we, when we talk about compassionate release, we use the word compassion. This country, as, as, this people as a whole, has lost that. And I mean, I understand that. Yeah, uh, you should pay for the crime that you committed. Uh, I mean, he said we we, we uh, reap uh, what we sow. But again, uh, I mean, just because one was not compassionate doesn't mean that we need to do the, become the same way. Uh, if someone's sick, if they're dying, I mean, again, uh, you alluded to they're, they're, they have the death sentence, whether they got it or not as a, uh, you know, 
as a punishment. They, they're, they have the deficit. They're dying. Uh, so I truly believe that we got to bring, we got to become capacity. We got to get back uh, to saying, okay, yeah, uh, you committed a crime. Uh, it affected my family, uh, but now you're dying. Uh, so what do I do? Do I do I become as hard as you were, or do I say, hey, yeah, let this individual go home and let this person die at home? But most of, most likely, it's going to be in a hospice facility. Or or sometimes if a family chooses not to do the hospice, they just want the person uh, to die around loved ones, their kids maybe. Uh, again, please understand, this does not take away the grief of one, as we heard in the opening clip tonight, talking about they took my father or my husband away from me and they killed him on a cold slab of concrete and left him there. Let me make no mis- please make no mistake about it. That is horrific. And we don't in any way minimize that tragedy or that horror. What we're saying is, is that in spite of that, will us going to a step as a society, as a, in a culture, do we say, well, just keep piling it on? Some of these people have, as I said earlier, have been in prison for decades. They've got the point. What they did was wrong. And even though they, what, they were not sentenced to the death penalty, they have in, inadvertently received it. Then why the argument? Why the problem? That person who took your loved one, if that's how you feel, is going to die. And whether it's by terminal illness or whatever takes him out of here or her out of here, they're leaving. What is the debate? What is the debate? That's the question. Yeah, Lamont, uh, for me, I think, we, like we discussed both on and off uh, the air and in the breaks and everything like that, people want to see, you know, this quote-unquote justice system that we have here, you know, do its job. But the fact of the matter is, like we've said, you know, if, they're, if they've got, I mean, dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer, any number of diseases behind the wall, like, like Dennis said, they have a death sentence. They're not going to recover from a terminal disease. Like they're not going to recover from Alzheimer's or dementia. They're no longer a threat to society. But again, the the families of the victims of the initial crime have hardened themselves so much. Like they don't, they really don't care. There is no compassion there. And to Kendrick's point that he made too, yeah, the BOP and DOJ, like those guys, are just as culpable. They want to literally just treat prisoners like a cash cow as many beds as they can keep filled regardless of how many you know or how sick the bodies are that are laying in them they're still getting paid by filled bed and there's nothing there's nothing that anybody's really doing about it you know there's there's a definite lack of compassion in society and and even back to cliff's point about the standardizing you know the process across the board stop putting it in the hands of these local administrations stop putting it in the hands of these crooked judges and wardens and everybody else make it a law give it a time frame make it measurable to where look if this you know prisoner inmate whatever you you know you want to say puts in a request they have a certain amount of time for it to go up to the wardens and it has a certain amount of time and it has a time frame and there has to be somebody monitoring it holding them accountable because people dying behind bars with a terminal illness, you know, when they could be out and around their family, I mean, it is an absolute travesty in our country here. And if we we don't do something about it, then nobody will. And, you know, 
looking at the stats for BOP and their compassionate release, it says that from 2013 to 2017, the Bureau of Prisons approved 6%. 6. Not 6, not 60, not 16. 6% of 54 applications received for compassionate release. While 266 inmates who requested compassionate release died in custody. In custody, The Bureau of Denials, a review of dozens of cases shows, often override the opinions of those closest to, to prisoners like their doctors and wardens. The warden will say, yes, they need compassionate release. And the director of the BOP says no. Says BOP admits that fewer than 10% of compassionate release bids make it past the director. An inmate must first get a recommendation from the institution warden, then approved, uh, then and then approval of the BOP director. If the director forwards the motion to the sentencing court, the district judge will then decide the motion. What type of foolishness? So you're telling me the warden says you need to go home. You're too sick to be in prison. He sends that to BOP, and then even if the director says, okay, which th- that only happens in 6% of the instances, then it's sent to back to the judge who sentenced you. What does the judge have to do with your medical condition? This, this, the, the system is so twisted up and backwards. How do, you, how do you call any system successful, any part of a system successful, that only has a 6% approval rate and then 266 people that that is a uh, uh, 4,000 or 400% increase in the amount of people who die than the amount of people who are released. That is insanity. Well, we have a, uh, it's designed to be impossible to get out. That's basically, yeah, that's basically what it is. We're going to keep you there, fill that seat, getting that money until you die. We have a caller on. Uh, we have Pastor Banks who wants to make a comment about the show. And uh, Pastor Banks, you're live. Yeah, I was just listening to the show a few minutes ago, and I'm thinking to myself, Samson made a good point when he said we need to have laws put in place. But you know what? We have a lot of laws in place, but nobody enforces them. So even with our guys, when we went to, went to the prison, they they didn't they got rules down there that that's not even on the, that's not even in accordance with the BOP uh, rules and guidelines that's on the, that's on the internet. So if we if we put laws in place and don't have anybody to enforce those laws, they're no good. They're just laws sitting out there. They have no power unless they enforce them, and people have to follow them. But what we found out. Each warden that's in each prison basically is given the power to do whatever that he or she wants to do. So it's, a, it's ignoring what the BOP rules are because nobody enforces those, and they're not very strong to begin with. And then what I found out, too, during the time my guys have been there, we go down there and they got rules with papers plastered everywhere uh, where they've written on there uh, just, just – um, just with a, a marker or whatever, and those rules were just for us, not for anybody else. So if you go to the BOP website, one of those things that they got wrote all over the place, it doesn't apply to us, but they got it up for us. And, and, and to say to, uh, to our family and to our church friends, this is what applies to you. 
But check this out. Then when they have an inspection, they remove all of that paper. None of it is up there. Okay, if it's a rule, then why do you have to remove it when it's time for an inspection? So the, I think the greater problem with our system for, for uh, things being done and done proper and, and according to the law is that people are going to have to enforce it. Who, if any law in this country, if we don't enforce it, it's no good. We could ride down the street, somebody make you mad in the car or cross in front of you. If there wasn't a law in place that says you just cannot run over that person, We've had accidents everywhere. So the same thing applies to the prison system. If you put the rules in place, what good are they if somebody from the top is not enforcing them and, they, and there are consequences if you, don't, if you don't do it? But nobody is answerable to anybody. They're not accountable. So they just they put these, call these rules, they don't amount to a hill of beans because every prison you go to just about got their own set of rules. Well, if we got it like that, we're never going to get justice for everybody across the board. There has to be uh, rules and laws put in place that applies to every prison in the country. Otherwise, you got somebody over here doing their thing, somebody over here doing theirs, and it's totally injustice everywhere. So I just wanted to, to address that, that if they're going to do it, at least enforce it and be sure that somebody is in charge and these people, these wardens, and the people over the prison should be accountable to somebody. Anytime we put a power in place and any person is not accountable, even the President of the United States is accountable, because I don't know about the one we got now, but I'm talking about our, uh, over a period of time, all of our presidents, they're accountable to Congress, to, uh, to whatever. But uh, if, if he wasn't, we see crazy things going on all the time, even from that level of government. So... That's where the biggest problem is. I just want to call in and thank you for taking my call. And thank you for the comment. And folks, listen to this real carefully. The Bureau of Prisons spent $1.3 billion on health care in fiscal year 2016. Roughly 12% of prisoners are 55 or older. And of those, many will spend their final years behind bars. Some are dying in shackles. When Andrew Schiff arrived at a medical facility for inmates to say his goodbye, his dying 87-year-old father was unconscious and on a respirator, yet he was cuffed to his hospital bed and under 24-hour watch by an armed guard, according to Schiff. There's no humanity in there, he said. That is uncomprehendable to me. This man is dying, he's on a respirator, and you have him cuffed like it's just, it doesn't matter. That is what we address tonight, and we're going to continue to address that issue uh, as we have to, uh, as the caller just alluded to. Everything looks like it's a rosy bed of caring and love when you go to BOP websites. It's a joke. It's no more than a Hollywood production. That's all it is, because when reality hits, uh, we find out that those things simply are not true. And uh, I'll tell you what, right now we're going to be joined uh, tonight uh, by a young lady that I had the privilege of talking to over the last couple of days. And she has a story to tell of why this subject uh, is being discussed tonight. I can tell you right now, she is the reason that this show 
was put on the calendar for today was her story. And uh, we are very, very happy to have her. Shelly, are you with us? Yes, I am. Shelly, thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you again as we, again, have had the honor of, of talking over the last couple of days. And I cannot wait to give you the floor to share, as, as you've probably heard on this program thus far, what we are dealing with when it comes to the inhumanity of this country. And I want you to tell our listeners, introduce yourself to them and share your story with us. And we will go along and, and talk and get into this discussion as we, as we go forward. Would that work for you? Yes. Yes, it will. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, my name is Sally Stanley. Um, I'm from Texas. I live outside of the DFW area. Um, my husband is currently serving a 30-year sentence in the Department of in CDC, which is Texas Department of Corrections. Um, he was sentenced in February of 2017. On a, he got a 30-year sentence. Um, it was on a possession of a controlled substance. He had previous charges, so therefore his charge was enhanced, which gave him the 30. Um, my husband is um, 58 years old. Um, he um, started his prison sentence and did really well. Um, he worked his way up to being an outside trustee. In August of 2018, he was living on a trustee camp and working on a um, working for a crew that worked in the city for the city of Huntsville. Um, one afternoon, he um, got sick. Um, he had severe abdominal pain. Um, they transported him to the hospital there, and he had a CT scan, and from there they took him to a hospital in Huntsville where he was diagnosed with stage 4 terminal cancer that had metastasized throughout his body. That was the beginning of our um, dealings with the medical in TDC, um, I can't tell you what all we've been through. My husband has uh, gone back and forth to UTMB in Galveston, which is our hospital. Um, every time he is transferred there, he um, has to wear his shackles and his handcuffs, and he is in severe pain with the cancer throughout his body. Finally, in October, um, he had another CAT scan, and it showed that the cancer was attaching to his spine and that if they didn't do something, it was going to be paralyzed. Um, he was then admitted to the hospital there in Galveston where he spent, I think, 21 days. Fifteen of those days, he did receive radiation therapy. Um, he was sent back. When he was released from there, I was told that he would go to a facility that was close to the hospital, so that as he had to go back and forth to his oncology appointments, that it wouldn't be as hard on him. Um, this facility he's presently at is not a medical facility. It is more of a um, people with terminal illnesses and elderly people. It's a more laid-back facility. But at this facility, they're still treated the same as other offenders. Um, he has to get up and walk to Pill Window. Um, and stand in line at Pill Window at 3 o'clock in the morning, no matter what the weather is. Some days he's not able to walk to Chow Hall to even feed himself. Um, he has lost weight. Um, 
finally, the first of January, his oncologist told him there was nothing else that they could do for him as far as treatment, which in my my eyes, he never really had any treatment other than the radiation therapy. Um, He told him that he was tired of coming back and forth with no treatment plan, and they turned him over to palliative care. Um, He had seen palliative care one time since the 1st of January. Um, The doctors and providers there at his unit tell him every time that he goes in to see them that, Mr. Stanley, there's nothing left we can do for you. We're waiting on palliative care to get you to go to hospice. Um, My husband calls me some days in tears because he's in so much pain. I do realize that these units probably have a certain amount of pain medicine that they can give. But in our society today, I do not believe that there is anybody that should be in any kind of pain. Um, I just, um, I, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to hear the way that he is treated and the things that are not done that should be done to give him the kind of care that he would have gotten if he had been in the free world. No, without question. And, and, and Shelly, this has to be, um, and I try my, I, I'll try my best tonight to try to understand. Uh, I can understand to the point of injustice, see, of a system that continues to earn the reputation of barbaric. We continue to earn that. You, what you have gone through, what your family has gone through, a heart breaks. Because to know someone like, again, a loved one, your husband, your, your wife, your child is suffering. And there's really no excuse for no medical treatment. How do you not have pain medication being given to you with stage four cancer? How is that, I, how is that humanly possible? Go ahead, Shelly. I, you know, he is on pain medication. He has been on the same dosage of pain medication for the past four months. And I I know for a fact that as your cancer progresses, that Mm -hmm. there are other pain medications. There are other dosages that you can give, but he has been on the same amount of pain medication for the past four months. He sometimes tells me that, they will send him back to his dorm and tell him to take an ibuprofen 800 milligram. For cancer. Exactly. These things that, you know, besides that, there's other symptoms that are going along with the cancer that have started to open up that he's not even being treated for. Um, it, I, I don't think that people realize that, you know, we take for granted that we can go to our kitchen and get something to eat whenever we want to, but don't think about if you're sick or you have nausea and vomiting and you have to walk to a chow hall and stand in chow line. Um, there's just, it's just not even feasible that these things happen in our day and time in the United States. No, oh, absolutely right. Uh, that, how again it's it's better to again let somebody go home to die let me not forget we that. we um 
here in the state of Texas, we have um, what's called the MRIS, which is Medical Release and Supervision, which goes along with the Passionate Care. Compassionate Care. Um, while we were in the hospital at UTMB in Galveston, our social worker did file for that for us. And at that time, my husband was in pretty bad. His health had deteriorated quite a bit. Um, on November the 26th, we were denied by parole saying that he was a threat to society. Now, he's a threat to, to, to society with stage four cancer. Am I hearing you right? That's what I that that's what my answer was from the parole board in the state of Texas. Now, also too, as I was told that as his condition continues to deteriorate, that these MRISs can continue to be filed, and parole will look at his file again. But it's like you were talking about. Decides when you're to that point that you get to come home to die with your family. Look. If if parole in the state of Texas is is any uh, anything like parole in most states, if you get turned down, you're coming back in six months. Well, uh, Go ahead. with the MRIS, that is different. It is different. Um, we do. Okay. I do. I can say that um, they the file can be opened back up at any time as long as the doctor says that he is terminal and it continues to change. But he's already been diagnosed as terminal from the first time he went back to parole, correct? Yes. When he, yes. When he went to parole, continues. To, to, all right. So, and, and I'm just getting clarification, Shelley. So when okay. he came, yes. when he, when he came in and went before parole on November 26th, he was already diagnosed as terminal. Is that correct? Well, that wasn't his parole eligibility date. That was a special parole for his illness. Okay. His okay. parole eligibility date is not until October of 2019. Okay, but they gave him an option for an early parole meeting because of his condition, correct? Yes, medical release. Okay. Medical release. And he was terminal at that time, correct? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay, so this is my confusion with what they're talking about. They can pull the file at any time and say, take a look at him, and as long as the doctors say he's terminal. Well, they've already said it. Exactly, exactly. They've already said it. So, and, th- and that's what really infuriates me. It's a political pun. Well, go, we're going to deny you this time, but we can pull this and give you the opportunity as long as the doctors say you're terminal. What you want to look and say to the people who make that statement to you, what are you talking about? Because we've exactly. already established the fact that your husband was terminal. So why do I have to have a file? They've got to go back to a month from now as his, as his, as his diagnosis becomes worse. This is why... We are having this show. They give an explanation and they prey upon people not knowing. Just give them an answer. Not because they care. And the fact that they convene a group of people together to say, look, let's take a look and offer him an early parole release. They have no intention of giving it. Exactly. Am I right on that, Shelly? You're exactly right. That's, that's exactly how we feel. Um, 
uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but are you going to wait till the day before someone is going to die before you say, okay, we're going to let you go home today? That it, it doesn't make any sense. Let me ask you a question, Shelly. Uh, and as we talked earlier, what steps? Now, this was six months. So he's within what time frame of according to being – Go ahead. The doctors in August told us that they were, of course, we, as we know, uh, there's only one person that knows when it's your day. But the yeah. doctors there told him that we were looking at six months to a year. We're on seven months this week. Wow. And when's the last time you talked to your husband? I talked to him this afternoon. Um, I talk to him on a daily basis as long as he is not in a free world or off-unit hospital where he doesn't have phone access or something else has happened where medical feels he needs to be in a special housing where he, there's not phones allowed there. Um, I, that's how we keep up with my husband. That's how we know he's okay. I him two or three times a day on the phone to make sure that he is okay and he lets me know what's going on with him. And how is he? How is he faring here? Uh, um, he he has good days and bad days. Um, you know, I ne- we never know from day to day um, how it's going to be. Um, one day he'll call and he'll say he's not having any pain, and then like today he's he's had a lot of nausea and vomiting. Um, it's it's a typical cancer patient who is not receiving any kind of treatment and is just simply being pacified with pain medication well and are you petitioning the the authorities to say look please i'm sure you are uh let my husband out the clock is ticking uh what what is their response to a a, right now right now my main goal uh, and us as a family is to get him to a hospice unit um, I do believe that the state of Texas, from what I've understood, only has one hospice unit where people who are incarcerated go to die. Um, from what I have been told is this is a very um, compassionate place where they really are taken care of. Most of their care there is given by other offenders who have volunteered to work here to take care of the inmates who are dying. Um, I do know that um, once they are there, as their condition does worsen, the hospice team, along with the hospice doctors there, do file again for the offender to come home with their family. Um, But I have been working on this particular thing since the 1st of January, and I have been told numerous times that palliative care from UTMB that does our health care are the ones that will make the decision for him to go to a hospice unit and right now that's that's what our goal is um i want my husband to not be in pain or to have the medication available that's needed for the symptoms that he's having at that particular time which every day could be something different um i want him to be closer to our family at this time right now he is Six hours away from me and almost 11 hours away from his sister and his daughter. 
um, at this particular hospice unit, that would put him about two hours away from me and three hours away from his daughter. At this time, we are not getting any help at all to make this happen. All right. This is what I want you to do, Shelly. A just cause will get involved here. I'd like to submit a letter to the organization uh, in regards to uh, this situation. I am heartbroken over it. Um, it's just unacceptable. Six hours away, 11 hours away from his daughter. And he's in, yes. I cannot imagine. How long have you been married, Shelly? We have been married for two and a half years. We got married right before he went to, before he took his sentence. Um, we had been together for two years before that. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's some, there's some definite, uh, difficulties there and in most cases in some states they will grant compassionate relief to allow someone to be at a facility closer to family uh for traveling purposes for all of these things that you have uh to endure that uh, i cannot tell you how sorry i am for you on that uh, we're going to discuss that a little bit further uh but we're going to get involved we'd like to we're going to submit a letter to that organization we're going to put the heat on them if we can and say, do the right thing. Uh, Thank you. Who is your representative there in Texas in, in, in Congress on Capitol Hill? I, I'm not for sure. All of my letters that I have been writing have been to go, have been going to uh, Governor Abbott, um, and I oh, get no response hey. back. Yeah, it's a state case. But uh, the elected official in Washington, you don't know who that is for your area? No, sir, I don't. Okay, we're going to research that and make a make a call up there to Capitol Hill and find out uh, what we can do. Uh, there's something about a senator or congressman making a phone call to a governor regarding an issue. Things tend to happen. Let's see what we can do. We'll do everything we can to help you with that. We're going to come back here, more of your story. I want you to hear this before we go to break. And to our listeners, states here, after reading Mr. Bell's medical records, officials concluded that he had more than 18 months to live. Two days later, he died. I begged him to please get him home, said Mr. Bell's sister, Denise Littleford of Gaithersburg, Maryland. And while the blood was still warm in his body, instead of sending him home in a body bag. Somebody tell me who gave a diagnosis for 18 months and two days later, this man was dead. This speaks to the incompetence that inmates are given as far as care with a daughter crying saying uh, uh, excuse me a, a sister of this man crying please let me take my brother home request denied ultimately death was next this is AJC Radio we continue this discussion the terminally ill the sick the dying the hurting collateral damage of injustice and for how many Shelleys are out there tonight suffering the pain that Shelley is going through with this situation? We're going to talk about it when we come back. This is ADC Radio. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent, but that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, 
interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence. On average, 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Are English muffins just muffins in England? Why is it called a washing line and not a drying line? Do fish get thirsty? If ghosts can walk through doors, why don't they fall through floors? Do you yawn when you sleep? If prunes are dried plums, how do they make prune juice? Why do doctors leave the room when you change? They're going to see you naked anyway. Do bald chefs wear hairnets? How much deeper would the ocean be if all the sponges were taken out? Do you believe someone who says they're a chronic liar? Why is sandwich bread square and sandwich meat round? Life's full of hard questions. Ask one more. You might just save a life. anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855- 
529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. You can tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say the prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big Pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio tonight as we have been honored and been privileged to have on this program Shelly Stanley, uh, collateral damage, if you will, of the system of cruelty, unusual punishment as she fights for relief for her husband as he fights for his life with stage four cancer behind the wall. Uh, This is something that um, it's tragic. We've been talking all night uh, in regards to the inhumane treatment of human beings behind the wall of America's prisons. This takes it to another level. As diagnoses come down for six months, year, three months, whatever you call it, and a system that says we are so bent on punishing upon punishing upon punishing that we let a dying man struggle through his death while simultaneously ripping the heart out of family members that love him or her. It's barbaric. Kendrick, as you've heard from Shelley tonight, what are your thoughts? What do you go away from? What do you take away from that? My question is, how does the most brutal dictatorship on the planet with North Korea give compassionate release to Otto, Otto Warmbier and we don't? 
we can't give it to our own citizens. Now, granted, they did auto wrong. I'm not taking anything away from that. But they at least gave him the courtesy to die with his family. And, and as, you're, as you were emphasizing before, this is about going home to die. This is not they're going home to, to have a vacation, build a new home, whatever. This is their, their lives are ending. Can the U.S. government, our, our prisons, our state prisons and federal prisons have enough compassion to say, at least let them die among their friends and family? And not alone, not among strangers. That's just all they have to do. Oh, absolutely. Shell, are you with us? Shell, are you with yes, us? Yes, I'm here. Yes, Thank I'm you. here. Thank you so much for your patience. We appreciate that. Uh, as we were talking, um, you've been very, in my opinion, gracious tonight. Um, what would you say to the listeners out here as we, again, begin to get on board with you in this fight as an organization, what do you say to those listening tonight? How can we, they can get involved? What do we need to do? How do we champion around you who I consider a champion as you fight for justice for your husband? And this is justice in the simplest way. It's called being a human being. What would you say to our listeners? I think more than anything, what I want to say is our case is just one out of a thousand. I stop and think daily about the offenders throughout the United States that don't have a person that is standing up for them like I am for my husband. What are they going through? How are they being treated? If my husband is being treated like this and I am on a constant battle with TDC and his medical staff to have things done, what about the people who have no one fighting for them? Mm -hmm. What are they going through on a daily basis? Um, It just breaks my heart to think because I know how hard my battle is every day, and it is an everyday battle that I try to make sure that my husband gets the best proper care that he possibly can be getting while he is in prison. But what about the people who have no one to even speak out for them? Yes, and whose voices have been silenced, uh, whether it's fear or acts of intimidation. Uh, you are so uh, correct in your assessment of that. And your heart to feel for those that may not have that support uh, is well noted tonight, as you have impacted at least my heart tonight. I'm sure our listeners um, Shelly, what is your schedule here for the next probably 15 minutes or so? Are you, are you in, a, in a time crunch to be somewhere? No, sir. Okay, I'm going to invite you to stay, stay online with us. We're going to bring on another young lady, but I'd like for you, both of you maybe to chime in if you want. I want you to feel comfortable to do that, if you're okay with that. And if you need to go, uh, just let us know, and we'll let you go. But I, want to, I think what you have to say is important. I think what you say is, is, is penetrating uh, I believe, to the hearts of people that listen to this program tonight because of what you are living. She, the young lady we're going to bring on now uh, has suffered uh, uh, even, a, even, you know, she's been in the situation that you're in, but in this case, uh, uh, her son passed away. But I'm going to let her tell the story. We're going to leave you here and with your mic open. If you'd like to talk uh, and, and comment, I'm going to make, I may come to you with your thoughts on what you hear tonight. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Okay. 
Uh, right now, we're going to bring on Ann Burke, um, and she uh, – I've had an opportunity to speak with her uh, as well in the last couple of days in regards to what she has gone through. I'm going to let her introduce herself, but let me give her a formal welcome to our program. Uh, Ann, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We appreciate you. As You heard me moments ago talking to uh, Shelly Stanley, who is dealing with the terminal illness of her husband. Uh, our hearts and prayers go out to her as well. Uh, very, very emotional topic tonight, but one that needs to be addressed. And I thank you for uh, having the courage to come on this program and share your story uh, and hopefully be an inspiration, which I believe you will be to others. Uh, what you have to say. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. We appreciate that. Well, and thank you for having having me be on the program and to talk about the struggle and Alex's journey that he um, he went through and how difficult it was. So I don't know if you want to ask me specific questions or if you want me just to kind well, of talk what about I, what I'll do for you. What I talk I do for you. Uh, and as we talked earlier today, we're, we're, we're just a couple of folks drinking some tea on the front porch, having a conversation. And uh, okay. so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the floor. If you've got questions of me, you can ask me. I'll ask questions as we go. And let's have a conversation uh, with our listeners tonight. Introduce yourself and I'll give you the floor. OK, so hi, everyone. Um, and good evening. My name is Ann Burke and uh, Alexander Phillips was my son. He passed away uh, this past November, 2018. He was 31 years old. Um, he had been incarcerated for about 12 years or so, um, 2006, I believe it was. And um, he did really well. He was a model prisoner, and I know that probably sounds like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. He uh, obtained his GED. He uh, went on to get his bachelor's degree from Boston University that has a program at his prison at Norfolk, MCI Norfolk. He was on the education committee. He was on the debate team. Um, He helped many, many, many other um, prisoners when he was in there with uh, different things. He tutored up in the classrooms. Uh, he worked. He was the head of his uh, program, which was a maintenance yard landscaping type of uh, job that he had. <clears throat> and um, he just really turned his life around and, and did, uh, did a lot and had a great future in front of him. Uh, talked about, you know, going on to MIT, had made connections with some of the professors and was hoping to get his master's and eventually his Ph.D. So last January 2018, he, towards the end of January, started saying that he was kind of tired. And I didn't really think too much about it because he was doing a lot. He was in school and working and helping and on the debate team and the education committee. But then in February, he really started to complain more about that and then started um, saying he was nauseous and really couldn't eat, and I could tell he, had, he was losing weight. So to make a very long story short there, um, we, we finally were able to get him an appointment um, with the medical team there at Norfolk, 
which takes a while. You can be really sick and put in a slip, and that doesn't mean you're going to be seen that day. It could be the next day or three days later. So he was seen by the doctor who thought that he had a um, ulcer. <clears throat> I need to backtrack because I don't think I said when I introduced myself that I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for a long time, and the last probably 10 to 12 years of my career, I did hospice nursing. <clears throat> so looking at Alex, I knew that things were not, there was something definitely going on there. So he saw the doctor. The doctor ordered some tests, and um, then I had to fight with the staff at the Department of Corrections there at Norfolk to get the tests done. What some of what had transpired was the superintendent that had been there left, and I don't, they didn't have anybody sort of in charge, so to speak. Um, so I often went ran around with the deputy superintendent. And after multiple phone calls, I was finally able to get Alex to get two of the tests that the doctor had ordered. And um, the last day that I saw him um, in February before he was sent out, you know, I was sitting next to him in the visitor's room, and he looked awful. He was very gray. He would lost a lot of weight. And he pointed to me um, to his side and he said, Mom, look at this big lump that just showed up today, which I knew was his liver, but I was not going to say that to him. And I just said, well, you know, maybe it's something with your bowel. You know, I I didn't want to tell him really what I knew was going on. So then my nightmare started because Alex and I had talked every day up until that point. And I didn't hear from him on Wednesday, and then I didn't hear from him on Thursday. So finally on Friday, I started calling there and got the runaround, the runaround, the runaround. And um, finally was um, told to, that, to call this other woman who was a liaison, who, who worked for the Department of Corrections but was not at Norfolk. And so I finally got her, and she, of course, would not tell me anything and um, so that she couldn't tell me anything because there was no HIPAA forms signed. I'm like, are you kidding me? Alex is my son. I'm his emergency contact. So to make matters worse on that, so this is Friday afternoon at like quarter to four and so she tells me that uh, because the forms are not signed, she cannot give me any information they will have two correctional officers or some correctional officers over the weekend bring the forms to where Alex is, get them signed, and then she and I can talk on Monday. So, you know, there wasn't much I could do about that. I just had to say, okay. I said, so when can I call you on Monday? Do you get in at like 8 or 9? Oh, no, I don't come in until 2 o'clock on Monday. So needless to say, I was a mess all weekend. Um... On Monday, I called. I gave her the benefit of the doubt, you know, called at like 2.20, no answer, voicemail. In her voicemail, she leaves two other people to call, so I called both of them. One picked up and said, oh, she just came in. So the long story short with that is she still wouldn't tell me anything because she, um, the forms were signed, but no one faxed them to her. <laughs> So she called me back and said, let me just, you know, check things out and I will get back with you. So I don't even remember the time, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, she called me back and 
she said, I'm going to do you a special favor. I'm going to make a phone call to the superintendent, and then I will call you back. So now this is like four phone calls, and I still have no idea where Alex is or what's wrong with him. Yeah. Calls me back and said, the superintendent is going to allow Alex to call you. So when she told me that, I knew things were not good. So Alex did call me, and he was at Boston Medical Center. The plus of that was that we weren't on a recorded line, <laughs> so I was able to three-way his um, dad in. But before his dad came on, Alex and I talked, and he, you know, he said to me he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, um, and uh, his words to me, and he started crying, were, "Mom, I know that I'm going to die, but I don't want to die in prison." So I said to him, Alex, you know that I will do everything I can. I will move mountains to bring you home. You will not die in that godforsaken place. And so then our battle started. That was March 1st. Um, Alex was given, um, well, originally they said three to five years, which I don't even know why they said that, because he had his cancer was had metastasized to his liver. It was huge. Um, his pancreas, it was already in his lungs. So um, when he got back to Norfolk, about three or four days later, um, I went to see him. And, you know, he was very thin, um, very pale, just, you know, was not Alex. <laughs> So we, you know, said, okay, let's make a plan, um, and we needed to get an attorney. Now, in the state of Massachusetts, we did not have a compassionate release program at that time. It was in the works. Uh, there were several senators working on a criminal justice reform bill, and that was part of it, but it wasn't supposed to even be voted on until July. So I got very active um, I lucked into calling a phenomenal attorney. It was just totally God intervention, I swear, <laughs> because it was a Saturday and um, I made a phone. My girlfriend was with me. And we made a phone call to an attorney here on Cape Cod, who I knew would not be able to do the case, but she referred us to Ruth and it was a, Ruth Greenberg. And it was a Saturday afternoon, and I called her and. From that point on, we just started working together. She took on Alex's case, and um, we went before the judge here on the Cape to try and get Alex released before, you know, because there was no compassion release. But like many people in the judicial system, he, you know, heartless, pompous, and um, would not let Alex out. Do you... uh... Um, what did the judge say? Do you remember? Uh, basically that he didn't feel, well, so I should say that we had, I got all of Alex's medical records from Boston Medical Center, and I had three hospice doctors, well, two doctors and a certified nurse practitioner in hospice um, read all his files and write letters. So they all said that Alex had 18 months or less. I knew that from just reading him myself. So the judge uh, basically said that he didn't think that Alex was that sick. He didn't look that sick. 
and Ruth can probably tell you more exactly what he said because I don't remember his exact words, but okay. that, you know, we, we could wait for the statute. So it was a constant battle with the Department of Corrections. Um, so after we lost that case, then we, um, I had made phone calls to many of my friends who I knew had some connections in our political um, world. And one of them was a very good friend with her state rep uh, who said that the bill was actually going to be signed before July. So I made phone calls to uh, Senator Brownsberger's office to try to get some information on that. And his staff was very lovely and talked to me and explained how all that was going to go. We had... Lots and lots and lots of people call and email to the, to the governor's office because the governor here, Governor Baker, was against this bill. Um, he did end up signing it eventually on April 12th or 13th. And before the bill was signed, we put a petition in um, for compassionate release. And just by looking at the statute and figuring out what they wanted, um, Ruth and I put the petition together and sent it. I sent it to the the new superintendent at Norfolk and the our commissioner at the time, who was Thomas Turco, and that was denied. Unbelievable. So basically, they they denied it by saying that Alex was um, a safety risk and that they didn't think that he was that sick because he could still walk. Um, The other piece, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, please, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, Let me interject one thing here. Um, I'm trying to figure out how this judge, the city commissioner, they they have a medical license? No, and he didn't. Go ahead. No. No, I was just going to say, I was infuriated because there was, doctors that wrote how sick Alex was um, and his time frame and he didn't he didn't pay any attention to that I you know well this particular judge was a judge that sentenced Alex also um, and the same DA because that's how it works you have to go before that particular judge and um, he's known he's now retired uh, which he was going to retire, but I think his hand was forced after there was an unfortunate incident here on the Cape with a police officer being killed by um, someone that he, this particular judge, uh, don't, I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it was over 100 um, incidents that this person had, and Judge Nickerson let this man loose multiple times. He was not locked up. So um, there was a big outcry in our community about that. And then um, Judge Nickerson all of a sudden retired. Well, what I want to do... Um, I'm sorry, Ann. No, go ahead. I'm taking a breath. (laughs) No, no, you're fine. Uh, What I want to do, I'm going to bring your attorney on after the break. We're going to take a quick break. She is in queue to come on. I want to hear right now. Right now, I would like to hear from Shelley... Uh, I want to hear her thoughts on what she's heard, and I'm going to share something uh, out of respect for uh, Shelley's time 
She's been so gracious with us tonight. I understand both of you folks are East Coast time zones. And I want to get uh, Shelly's thoughts on this right now. And I'm going to be gracious and not allow her to uh, uh, be so gracious to us as uh, us to interfere in her time, of course, on her evening. She's been so kind. Uh, Shelly, when you hear uh, Ann talk about um, her son, um, give me your thoughts of what you feel, given what you are going through and how collectively, I guess, all of us together uh, can hopefully uh, lift each other up as we go through this difficulty. Um, trying to find solutions. What are your thoughts, Shelley, on this? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, Ann, I am so sorry for the loss of your son, and um, my heart breaks for you. Um, My heart also goes out to you because everything that you have described in your battle with your son is the same thing that I'm going through right now. Um, not getting the care that they need, um, not making people realize that they are sick and they're not going to get better. And also then you have people in the higher-ups that can overrule what a doctor says. Um, Right. I I don't understand that, how a parole board can sit there and say, you're not that sick. Um, You're not a doctor. You don't have that doctor's degree. Um, I just, this, hearing your story, it it touched my heart. It breaks my heart, and I am so sorry for the loss of your son. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and I am sorry for what you were going through, too, and I know that was just the beginning of our battle. It We fought with them all the way till when Alex was released on November 1st. Um, so, you know, I will put you and your husband in my prayers because, believe me, you need a lot of strength to Thank get you. through and to, and to manage. Thank you um, so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both for that. And uh, I'm going to be in touch with both of you ladies offline. Shelly, I will be in touch with you as we get ready to get in the trenches with you, get into this fight with you. Thank you. uh, We intend to do that. I want to be respectful again of your time. Thank you for your graciousness, your courage. Thank you. Night to come on this show. I'm pretty sure we'll have you back if you're up for it. Uh, I don't think this topic goes away. I don't think this topic goes away in one show. I don't think so. And we're going to look at no. it from all points of view. Um, thank you for your time tonight. Uh, Shelly, again, we'll be in touch. And maybe uh, you and Ann can connect and all that good stuff. And uh, we all, everybody, good deal. And, and, and we're going to be in touch uh, again as, as a group to, to go forward with fighting this injustice. And uh, uh, Shelly, I'm going to let you go on that note. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Thank you Ann, for having me. You're very welcome, and you've been a delight on this show and, and again, an inspiration without question uh, to our team and our, and our listeners across the country. We appreciate it so much. And, again, you try to have a good rest of your night. Our prayers and thoughts go with you and your husband as well. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And, Ann, uh, stay on the line with, the, with us if you can. We're coming yes. back with Ruth Greenberg. That's your attorney. Is that correct? Uh, that is. Who, who is going to be chiming in on the legal perspective of this issue. I had an opportunity to talk to her today and a uh, delightful young lady fighting for justice. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. The terminally ill, the cruel, unusual treatment 
of our citizens as they enter the point of death and no compassion can be found. We'll take another look. This is ABC Radio. We'll be right back. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fear justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, 
life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room, to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. In an email to a reporter in May, Alex Phillips wrote this, that he had lost 30 pounds, is constantly in pain and nauseous. I quote, I'm dying by the day and becoming more physically incapacitated, he wrote. I do not have a fear of dying. I fear dying in prison with the inadequate medical help where I suffered day in and day out without my family. City Commissioner Turco letter says that despite his cancer diagnosis, Phillips is not incapacitated or, de- or debilitated to eliminate risk to the public. He said, Phillips lives on the third floor of his building, does not use a wheelchair or walker, and eats without assistance. Phillips still can make his way to frequent hospital visits without help, Turco wrote. He is transported under officer escort in full restraints, waist chains, and leg irons in a DOC van and car, walks to the transportation vehicle on his own and enters and exits the vehicle on his own power. Phillips is serving 18 to 20-year sentence for manslaughter for a 2006 stabbing of a former schoolmate, Anthony Reynolds, 19, of South Yarmouth. Reynolds' mother, Audrey, said too that she does not support Phillips' release petition I have no compassion for Alex. I read that to say this. Mr. Turco is a disgrace to the profession in which he works. A disgrace. 
He started earlier by saying, I give my, my uh, sincere thoughts to the family and to the, to the diagnoses that Mr. Phillips received. But your actions are a complete contradiction. Superior Court Judge Gary Nickerson, the judge who made the statement, I don't believe Mr. Phillips is sick enough. What planet are you living on? You have doctor testimony stating it clear that this man's diagnosis is dire. And you still say he hasn't suffered enough. Human tragedy. Right now, we're joined again with the mother, Mr. Phillips who's been gracious and courageous to come on this show tonight. Ann Burke, thank you so much for joining us. We are now joined by a lady, uh, again, a fighter for justice, who I spoke with today, Ruth Greenberg, attorney for Ms. Burke. Ruth, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, And uh, I presume you folks... uh, I uh, can say hi to each other. Uh, you both are on the same line. And, uh, I can hear you. Okay. Um, good evening. Go. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying good evening to her. Yes. Ruth, let me ask you the question. We've heard Ann talk tonight. Uh, compelling. Give me your thoughts as counsel to the tragedy that we see in this situation with our criminal justice system? Well, I need to be clear. I can't join you in your wholesale condemnation of Commissioner Turco. I'm hopeful that in the future, uh, the Department of Corrections will be able to work with us to let prisoners go. I'm hopeful of that. I don't yet see signs of it. But our statute in Massachusetts is new. We're trying to work it out. We're trying to work together. It's a struggle. Uh, as, uh, I should give you some background. I do uh, 98% of my work is on behalf of poor incarcerated people. Most of the people I represent are accused of homicide in one way or another. I represent a great many children who kill. And I also represent now, following my representation of Mr. Phillips, uh, the very old, the very sick, the very impaired. Uh, Massachusetts was one of the last states in the country not to have a way for these people to be released. Uh, But in April of this year, as Mrs. Burke said, uh, the legislature of Massachusetts uh, embraced a very strong compassionate release statute and the governor of Massachusetts signed it. So we have it. And now it's a question of making it work. And sometimes uh, that requires uh, legal action. That's what I do. Uh, I disagree often with how the department of corrections is applying the statute, but I'm hopeful that in the future they will work with us. Of course, I'm suing them. (laughs) Tomorrow we're going to court. 
We're having petitions returned to us. We're having what I might call the bureaucracy of the Department of Corrections uh, frustrated by by their own by the statute's newness. I hope mm-hmm. respond to us by not cooperating in the way the statute commands. But I am hopeful we go before the single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of the Commonwealth tomorrow in what's called the single justice session. And I'm hopeful that our judge will help the Department of Corrections understand that the old, the sick, the impaired, as Mr. Phillips was, are entitled to be released. And I have volunteer students and volunteer lawyers working with me. We are hearing from person after person who needs uh, needs help, and we are, I am, responding to that need. I'm accepting everybody who qualifies under the statute. I'm representing all of them. Yes. And I, 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 and I will. And if there's anyone in Massachusetts who feels they qualify for a compassionate release under the Massachusetts statute, I'm Ruth Greenberg. I'm free. And the reason that I'm doing it is I promised Alex Phillips I would. He was a very fine young man, a bright, bright, wonderful young man. He went to college inside the prison. He had a perfect behavior record. He was a wonderful writer and a, a, a good son and a great client. And I promised him that I would do everything that I could to help everybody in Massachusetts who qualified enforce their rights under the statute. And that's what we're doing. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the Department of Corrections will come to agree with us. It does no good to the Department of Corrections, you know, to have old, sick, impaired people behind bars. And I'm... I'm confident that they will come to see that. I think that the medical people will shortly come to see that too. I think, I hope, that we're going to look at a cultural turnaround. We're going to have the Department of Corrections see that our our interests are in common. I'm hopeful that that's so. And I think that the instrument to, to bring the change around is going to have to be the court's. Because the legislature did the right thing. The legislature enacted the statute, and the governor did the right thing, and the governor signed it. So I I got two branches of government on my side, and tomorrow I'm going to have the third. Sure, and and listen, listen, we believe without question, if people can come together and work together to get one common goal reached, that's critically important. Please make no mistake about uh, I know you said the condemnation of Mr. Turco. This is it's, it's a condemnation when you have the power to act and you fail to do so. We condemn that type of action because it affects the lives uh, of people. So uh, I agree with you. If, if, the state, if the state can come together, the state can come together uh, and get things done. Uh, then that's a good thing. Uh, but people I'm hopeful be... that by this... Yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. 
I'm saying Mr. Turco is better than his worst day. And I, that's what I, because I say that of all my clients. And I am hopeful that by this time next year in Massachusetts, we are going to have set up a way for sick people to die at home with their families. I think by this time next year, I think I'm setting, if you think about crossing the bridge in Selma, you see it's a terrible thing to be in the first row. That's the first people are going to be hit the hardest. They're going to suffer the most. But I, I do believe that we are seeing a cultural change and that compassionate release will be in my lifetime, uh, certainly in yours, young fellow. <laughs> you know, well, I'm, we're going to see it. Well, I'm hopeful that, uh, uh, that that happens. I hope that the passion and the will to win and to do something that makes a difference, that is compassionate to people, transfer to all in this country. We hope that happens. Can I just, um, I would like to add uh, a couple of yes. things, if I may. Sure. So, um, going out what Ruth said, so Alex and I often had a conversation around the fact that he may not get out of prison. Um, and whether he did or he didn't, he was making history and and sort of forging a path um, for others to get out. And as Ruth is doing, and I am too, continuing his um, memory and his honor um, with trying to, you know, help others get out, um, find places for, for people to go. But I, I also want to say that, and I believe um, Shelley said this also, that it's very disheartening that there are people in power that override medical, um, medical physicians and nurses right. Who, right. who know better. And I, in my heart of hearts, know that Alex's fate was always going to be Alex's fate, that he was not going to live with that diagnosis. However, had he been let out in June when he did the first petition, I do believe that he may have gotten a little bit more time, not a lot, not years, but maybe even another month to be home with his family and friends. Yeah. You know, he, he got home. He was home for 23 days, 23 days. That was not enough time. Yeah. But it was all the time that we had, and we made it as quality as we could. And Ruth and I fought every single day to get him out of there. And um, I used to joke with her and say, you think they'd let him out just to get us off their back. Um, right. But I, you know, with uh, with Ruth, I, I'm hopeful that there's change. I don't know whether I have as much enthusiasm as she does about it, but she's in the trenches right now. I'm not. Um, but I do hope that, you know, Massachusetts comes around and that the department comes around because there's so there's so many people that that need to that need to come home that need to be with families or with people that will care for them and not have the atrocious care that is in prison and I fought for Alex for medication I fought with him 
not with him, but with the department, you know, almost on a daily basis um, for things to get done. And we had a really very wonderful superintendent, I have to say, who made things easier for us, but still Alex suffered day in and day out um, by not having the care that he should have had. No, absolutely. And and the efforts that's made by uh, you, uh, by Ruth, uh, is is to be commended. And uh, I think it's important. Um, and I think I, I, I want to key on something you said moments ago. Had the right thing been done, we can't go we can't go ring the bell again. We can't unring the bell, so to speak. But had the right thing been done, like you said, for a loved one who is dying. I don't know. I don't care if it's an extra day, an extra week, an extra weekend. That's a lifetime when you talk yeah. about someone being taken away from us. So uh, my my uh, passion that people let's let's go forward and hopefully we see change. But let's make the right decisions today that that one month that could have been given. Let's not just say, well, that's out of the way now. No, let's think about why that month was lost, if that had been given. If someone had taken to the, to, to the, to the microphone and said, you know what? We're going to believe what these doctors are saying. If we have a judge that says, you know what, we're going, it's, it is life, and life has to be precious. And I am hopeful, and I hope very seriously that Ruth's uh, belief that things are going to get better. I hope so. That's important. It's important. We believe that. But let's take accountability for today. That well, what, I what do two things. I'm, I'm sorry? sorry? No, go ahead. I said I do two things. We have hope, we have prayer, and also I sue. <laughs> right, right. It's not only a blind. <laughs> right. And look, listen, the work you do and the, and the fire you have, we commend that. That's important. We need more people that will get down in the fire and say, look, you've got to hold your feet to the fire and say, look, lives hang in the balance. Let's do the right thing. We're going to take a quick break, Ruth, uh, and we're going to come All back. Right, I'll your- sign off. I'll sign out now. I'll sign Ruth? off now. I have court tomorrow. Okay. You have a good <laughs> night. Thank you for taking time today. We wish you best. Our thoughts and prayers okay. are with you as we go forward. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. And are you going to you going to come back? I want to get your closing thoughts, some final things you'd yeah. like to say to our listeners. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a serious conversation going on tonight here at AJC Radio and across the country. Terminally ill, cruel and unusual punishment. Our citizens left behind to die alone in America's prisons across this nation. I got one word for you, unacceptable thousand times over unacceptable we'll be right back this is AJC Radio I'm a mother I'm a father I'm a sister a registered nurse I serve my country in the United States military I'm your neighbor I sit next to you at church and my child was arrested held in custody Questioned without my knowledge. Exposed to violence. Witnessed to rape. Placed in solitary confinement. Unable to call or see me. Shackled to a wall. Beaten. Sentenced 
as an adult at age 17. Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can, can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. As tonight we have had a conversation that's thought-provoking, one that causes you maybe tonight find it a little more difficult to fall asleep. Maybe tonight you find yourself perhaps in a moment of meditation thinking of those that are dying behind the wall, perhaps just in a prayer or thought to the families that who are suffering the collateral damage of a system that continues to fall off the rails. Tonight addressing the terminally ill, the stories of horror and lack of human compassion are center stage on this show tonight. And we've been honored with a number of guests tonight that have graced us to share their story. One being Ann Burke talking about the death of her son and perhaps could have had more time had those in authority in leadership to include Mr. Turco and Judge Gary Nickerson may have granted more time to this family can't mix that there's no words to mix with that it is what it is we have forced to take a look as a society into the mirror and demand change we will continue to demand that as an organization, and we should as a society. And thank you for coming back with us as we are up against the clock here. You've been a delight tonight on this show to share your story with extreme courage. We appreciate that. And without question, we believe others are motivated and inspired tonight by your story and your strength. What are your closing thoughts tonight that you would share with our listeners regarding the need for change as we proceed forward? I think I'm going to um, talk a little bit about, uh, so I touch on what Shelley said about the advocacy piece. Yeah. Alex had um, me to advocate for him, but there are many people that do not. And, you know, there's that saying, it takes a village. So yeah. I and my family, we wrote to our senators, we wrote to our representatives. I went to the state house and met with my senator. Um, I was on the phone and emailing the senators to put the bill together. Um, um, 
it, 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 just, it, it shouldn't, it be, shouldn't that way. be that way. It should not be that not way. You shouldn't, that way. Have, to you shouldn't have to fight that hard, that hard to bring someone home when there's a statue in place, place and it's not and being it's followed. followed. And there's no and accountability, accountability here in Massachusetts for the Department of Corrections. And I think and I think need to open their hearts and open their minds to what really what happened to the people, people that are sick that are sick and that are dying, that are dying in, in prison. prison. And to and to write to their write to their congressmen, write to their senators. You know, and you know, we mentioned earlier mentioned about the federal senators. senators. They don't they touch don't it because it's a state state. A state, a state prison. prison. Um, That's um, what the two, the two new senators, senators in my state say. So, yes. So, so you know, you know, a lot of a lot of needs to be done. A lot of people a lot need to rally together and and make and changes because it's so needed. No, absolutely right. Um, and and I'll tell you what. Uh, this problem exists in the federal system, so they should be doing something yes, yes. federally as well. And yes, typically, yes. if the federal yes, government yes. moves action, states sometimes follow. Um, so they need to get involved. They, they, they've been elected to do that. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, and we may bring you back. We're going to be doing a part two of the show. I know you've uh, given a lot tonight of yourself, of your heart. Thank you. Uh, thank it's, you. It's, it's heartfelt. Um, our thoughts, our prayers are with you always. Uh, you'll have my information. You have that. Contact me uh, as we hopefully can come together and fight for you and for those that have not suffered what you have but may spare them the pain and to leave, definitely leave Alex's legacy uh, intact as an advocate for justice. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you we appreciate so much. So much. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care. You have a good rest of the evening. Bye-bye. Quickly. Just sad all around. And it brings back uh, a lot of memories because I I personally witnessed two inmates die in prison, uh, apply for compassionate release, and it was denied. And they were cursed and doomed to die alone with no family. And no one thinks about that. It's just the cost of cost of a life and just just a little bit of humanity could have changed absolutely seven seconds samson we're against the clock go ahead uh yeah just to to reiterate what we've been saying throughout the whole show just we have to have more compassion nobody should be forced to to pass you know on from this life uh, without those they love around them absolutely dennis cliff uh we'll get with you on the other side next tuesday part two of this continues we're going to deal with the mentally ill the abuse there, the sick, those dying not only in prisons but in jails as well who are mentally unable or physically unable to defend for themselves. We will be their voice next Tuesday. Join us, would you? This is AJC Radio signing off tonight, fighting for justice for those that cannot fight for themselves. We'll see you next time. Take care. I actually watched a good friend of mine that was not a lifetime inmate who had a definite date to get out, turn green, and die in his bunk.
Prison healthcare in the U.S. is broken. After serving their time, prisoners will almost certainly be sicker upon their release, if they even make it that long. Joseph Calderon was in prison for 17 years. While serving time in the security housing unit, I had chest pain one night. Seven sharp pains that woke me up out of a dead sleep. Joe wasn't able to see a doctor the night of his chest pain. It wasn't until two weeks later that he finally got to see one. Joe says the doctor told him he just had a muscle cramp and sent him back to his cell with Benadryl. While prisoners are the only Americans who are constitutionally guaranteed to have health care, they often have to fight to see doctors and get medicine. Okay, so why is prisoner health care so bad? When it comes to political power, prisoners rank pretty much at the bottom. In certain states, they can't even vote. And prisoners rank at the bottom of the social ladder, too. American society generally views people in prisons and jails as deserving of whatever mistreatment they get. There just isn't the political will to make prisons and jails more humane. And state and city governments are under tremendous pressure to make the cost of incarceration as low as possible. Low pay at facilities tends to attract less qualified doctors. Much of the medical care is outsourced to private contractors, who often rely heavily on unlicensed medical assistants instead of doctors. And it could take months to even see a doctor. One of those contractors, Southern Health Partners, only requires its doctors to spend six hours a week visiting jails. And one doctor may be responsible for thousands of inmates. We see cases every day of the most horrific abuse and neglect of, of desperately sick people. A prisoner told to take comps for what turned out to be cancer. Nurses failing to deliver medications and falsifying records to show that they did. Uh, we have one case where uh, a nurse wrote in the patient's chart that he had um, his vital signs were normal and he was in no uh, apparent distress despite the fact that the prisoner had actually died 10 hours earlier. If they're lucky enough to get actual medical advice, prisoners might not be able to afford following it. They're still charged for co-pays and prescriptions. Their jobs in prison pay just pennies an hour. The average pay scale is about 18 cents an hour, so $5 for your medications can start to add up. Prisons and jails are designed to break people down. It's all but impossible to get meaningful care in a prison setting that is inherently detrimental to a person's physical and mental health. And stressful conditions, lack of exercise, and a diet full of salt, sugar, and carbohydrates don't do much to help sick inmates heal. It's not unusual to see people who are who look 15, 20 years older. So what do you think? It seems the real question isn't should prisoners get adequate health care, but how badly are we as a society willing to treat people in American prisons and jails? 